Welcome to Leaning In, a commercial real estate podcast hosted by Trademark Property Company. Join me, Terry Montesi, CEO and founder of Trademark, and other trademark leaders as we talk to industry experts about the future of retail, multifamily, and mixed-use real estate. Thanks for checking us out. And now it's time to lean in. Today, we welcome Kimberly Byram to the show. Kimberly is the managing principal for multifamily housing at Zonda, a leader in providing data-driven housing market solutions to the home building and multifamily industries. She has over 25 years of experience in real estate industry with a focus on market research and analysis. Kimberly has held senior positions at JPI, Myers Research, and Alvarez Marsal Real Estate Advisory Services. She also served on the ALC Steering Committee for the Real Estate Council. A graduate of Texas A&M University, Kimberly is a well-respected authority on multifamily housing market. Let's lean in. Kimberly, it's great to have you here. You've been a fixture in the space for years, but tell us a little bit about your background. How does an ag economics major end up as a leading expert in the multifamily industry? Well, thank you for having me. And I'd like to point out that I am a very proud Aggie and very thankful for my education in agricultural economics. I was raised in South Texas, which is a very ag-heavy part of the state. My father actually is a mobile home park real estate developer, and we moved down there to build mobile home parks for snowbirds back when I was four or five years old. So spent my formative years in the land of farms and crop dusters. And of course, A&M was my choice. And they are actually, believe it or not, in the top 10% of ag economics programs in the country and loved it. Had a great time there. And interestingly, I also did a lot of research in water resource economics for my professor while I was there. So, but my goal, I was a child of the 80s and everybody wanted to be a stockbroker. And so I had a spin on that where I was going to do commodities trading. So I took all the upper level hedging courses in ag econ and and have a very depth of knowledge in things like animal science, believe it or not, which I always tell my daughter is the best class ever in the world to take because you see where your food comes from. So left there looking for a job. I was mostly interviewing with ag companies like Cargill and made my way to Dallas to interview with the State Fair of Texas, their live auction and answered an ad in the newspaper because back then that's how you got a job, was looking in the newspaper for someone who had Lotus 1, 2, 3 skills and were perfect skills. And I was a master at those things. So I got a job at JPI working for the, really under the chief administrative officer and doing, he would put all of the numbers on a yellow piece of paper and do all the math with this calculator and say, can you put this on the computer for me? (laughs) I was was like, you don't need to do all the math. The math does that for you. So I was one of the first people that had a computer on my desk. So that was fun. And just a little tidbit there, I actually took the job that Pretlow Riddick vacated when he was promoted to development associate. And that's kind of how we met. <laughs> yes. That yes. was over about 10 years ago. Yes. You yes, and I met yes. through Prello. Still, and by the way, JPI is a lot like the Trammell Crow Network in that when you're born and raised there, like there isn't a day that goes by that I don't visit with somebody that I was somehow connected to through either working with or pitching a deal to or, you know, gathering data from that that's related to JPI. So such a great opportunity there. What a career. About a year ago, you mentioned undeniable headwinds were in store for 2023. What headwinds were you referring to 
And did this prediction come to fruition? Well, as you know, we all had to dust off our macroeconomics book at the beginning or at the end of the pandemic. And when we were going through the pandemic and looking back at some of the different downturns that I've been through, the dot-coms, housing crisis, et cetera, you know, this was a really hard one to kind of pin. And But I knew that we were going to just with slingshot back out of when of our homes after being locked down. And that caused such a crisis in pricing and supply chain, et cetera. So as the Fed started to move in, 11 rate hikes, 19 months, by the way, not the most during my career, they actually did 17 hikes during the housing boom uh, to, to slow the economy down. But we have had higher rate adjustments than typical. They have on median have gone like 50 basis points Whereas in the other cycles or the other times that they were tightening or loosening, they were doing a median of about 25. So they've been more aggressive this time around. So all of that has come to fruition. It has definitely, you know, as real estate, we are an interest rate sensitive economy or industry, and that has slowed us down very quickly. In addition, you know, those inflationary pressures that have also came up as, as we were in this cycle Uh, have come to fruition. We're hoping that some of those come down. We haven't seen it. I think maybe land, landowners are starting to get the memo, but, you know, there's still a lot out there that we're watching. And then finally, just residents in our communities. They've been propped up by the government subsidies early on. They've, you know, some of them, you know, we're starting to see bad debt show up. You know, the REITs are talking a lot about it because now they know how to game the system. So there's just been some things there that, you know, have all resulted from this macroeconomic situation that that we're currently in. And of course, student loan forbearance. Yes, that was gone away. Yes, that's coming back into their household budget. So how is that going to, you know, affect what's going forward? So, you know, on the other side, I actually just did a presentation a couple of weeks ago where I show all of these rate cuts during these different cycles. And and I kind of simulate that George Bush presidential library situation room. I don't know if you've been there, but they will, you know, give you something that the president dealt with and you have to make a decision, which is kind of cool. And so when you look at that and one of the facts that, you know, they're looking at is the unemployment rate because they're dual mandate, right? And that's the one saving grace for us right now is the labor market. If you look at all of the other times, at least in my career, where we've been through these these tightenings, Mm -hmm. um, you will see that we were at a higher unemployment rate. So they have a lot of slack right now. And so there's these job reports that, you know, we're anxiously awaiting tomorrow. I wait for it, you know, every month to see where we're landing. But, you know, as long as the, we still see this slack and this this employment positive, I think that, you know, the, this higher for longer could really impact us in the real estate business. I think if you ask people in real estate, depending on what their role is, they're going to tell you they're in a recession. So as we record this episode, 2023 is about to come to an end. Time to make a bold prediction for 2024. What trends do you anticipate in the multifamily space? What are the good and the bad? Well, so the first bold thing is I think the Cowboys should go to the Super Bowl. So that's bold. (laughs) So that's number one. The Aggies, not sure what's going to happen next year. But overall. (laughs) On that note, should Florida State have been in the playoffs or no? I'm not going to (laughs) say. I'm a numbers girl. So I'm a Florida State alumni, <laughs> so feel very strong on that point. They should have been in, but yes. I think future years it'll be expanded in the playoffs, so we'll see from there. But 2024, the good and the bad. Well, I think we're going to continue to see the slowing for 2024. We're watching all of these markets. You know, We're going to have a lot of pipeline hitting this year, 
coming up, 24 and 25. That was started in... That was started, right, right. Because the starts are down. I would say the starts are down, gosh, 30 to 40%. I think next year, we're going to see some ebbs and flows, you know, as we've seen deals get financed. So there will be some starts, but nowhere near to the level of our typical... JLL, CBRE, Walker Dunlop, they're saying across the market, they're seeing... 60 to 70 percent of starts down. You're saying about 40 percent down is really what you're seeing from your clients. I think next year I'm starting to see some green shoots, at least from the developer. You know, I work in the mostly Mm -hmm. the luxury developer space and they are mavericks. They always see the silver lining in the clouds. And so, you know, they want to build. There is obviously a need for housing at all levels. And so I do think that we're going to see waves, you know, and I'm starting to see it in my business where all of the brand names are still pushing forward. You know, you name the, the merchant builders that are very active, the, the big companies that that build and hold. We're still seeing a lot of that. But, you know, the, the, the smaller guys with the bigger pieces of land that probably don't have the banking or equity behind them, they're on the sidelines a little bit and everybody's waiting. I was actually, I talk a lot with the different architects. And, you know, talking to one of the main architects here in town, you know, they said they've got, you know, 25 to 30 projects on hold. So they're all waiting. My fear is they're all going to, you know, come back to market at the same time. And all of the consultants are going to be running around like crazy people trying to get answers for everybody. And I think that will probably, that's always the way things happen. But on the fundamental side, I think we're starting to see new lease rent changes come down. Yeah. You know, probably the biggest change is in Austin. But it's 6%, and it's 6% off of growth of 25% or more. Negative right? 6% right, right growth. Right, right, coming down, mm-hmm. coming down on the occupancies. And, you know, if you drill down into the different submarkets, a lot of the pipeline is coming in east. Uh, you know, 30% of that is workforce housing. Okay. So you got to drill down further. But, you know, there just seems to be in Phoenix. Is Which in, Austin needed. Yeah. Phoenix is another market, too. Those are probably the two poster children right now for a lot of pipeline coming in. And what's really surprising to me about Phoenix is that every submarket is down. And not every submarket is, you know, by my measurement, in an oversupplied or hyper-competitive situation. But it's almost like, you know, it's this crowd where, oh, we hear that there's a bunch of pipeline coming in Phoenix. So we've got to drop rents. But it's like some submarkets, I think, well, there's no reason for South Scottsdale to be adjusting rents downward. They don't have as much pipeline as, you know, maybe the West Valley does. So there's a little bit of just scratching my head somewhat on this kind of race to the mean, I guess. But renewals are still strong. And you see that. And we saw that during the great financial crisis, too. We were still passing on renewal rate increases. Now, just a little bit. I love to watch the turnover rates and the turnover rates have in most markets either come back to the mean or still a little bit higher than we normally saw. And they were really, really high during the pandemic. Um, I think those are going to start coming down as there are new options in the market. And so people get a four or 5% increase on their rents, but there's a new deal out there. Brand with new lower product. Rents. Why would you not move right. there and take the concession? There's going to be this, you know, so you're going to yeah. start seeing that turnover ratio come back down to where it was. So there's more mobility in the market. That's not necessarily a bad thing for the new developments, but certainly for those operators that have product that's 20. It's amazing when 2019 product feels old, you know, but it does when you get a brand new apartment. And so, you know, there will be some mobility. And so what I like to watch during these times is stabilize concessions. So anytime you get into a market where there's a thousand or more units competing, you're going to see concessions. We budget for them. So you're going to see that. 
But the question is, is do the stabilized properties have to offer concessions to keep their occupancy up? And so that's something that I'm watching because that's when things start to get concerning. My only other big concern is three months free. And Houston went there. They had a pipeline issue. They had an oil issue. Do you think we're going to see that again? I hope not, because it literally took a pandemic to get rid of them. I mean, once you start that three month free, you basically change the profile of your resident. I mean, it's a completely, you know, you've just changed the profile. And, you know, some of these beautiful high-rise buildings, it should be north of $3 a foot or at like $220, $230. Hard to make those numbers pencil. Absolutely. So so that's a concern and we'll be watching that. Hopefully we won't get there. But that's something, you know, again, and concessions are not a dimmer switch. I mean, they are an on and off. And you can see it if you go back through the data, you know, they turn on, they turn off. And so hopefully that's something that, you know, we easily start and stop as quickly as we can. Talking about oversupply a lot here. Earlier this year, you thought Dallas was an undersupplied market. (laughs) Yes, I would say just numerically. Well, first of all, I started my career in Dallas in 1991. And I started by doing market surveys of the Las Colinas submarket at the time, which this is a funny story. So I would call them myself. I would call every manager because JPI had seven properties in Las Colinas and like two in Fort Worth. And that was it. So I would call, there. Yes. Right. So I would call all of these comps. I was friends with all the managers and I would put this spreadsheet together. And I found that what I would do is I would make a photocopy of it with a little letter and I would mail it out to every manager so that they got a copy of my work. And so they would always like, re- and in fact, I started to get notoriety because people would call me and be like, where is that survey at? You know, and so that was how I learned how to get people. This was before there was an axiometrics and ALN and all those things where you could just Real pull page, a project GRD, profile. Co-star. Yes, it was, none of that it was, was Kimberly. There. It was me calling the Las Colinas properties, friends with every one of those managers. So that was how I got involved at, you know, starting my career in Dallas. I think I said jokingly, but not really, that this is really the first time in all of these cycles that I've been through in Dallas where Dallas isn't at the top of the oversupplied list. And so, you know, they are, in fact, you know, equally supplied or, you know, a little undersupplied, which, again, you know, in a 30 plus year career, that's like that's my bold statement of the year was that we weren't seeing that. But it's always been a great market. And, you know, while we do have pipeline issues sometimes here or there, or just a lot of fear of the second, third, fourth phases, you know, because someone will take down a big piece of property and, you know, you've got to count that as pipeline, but sometimes those don't come to fruition for eight to 10 years. Why has it, why has Dallas remained so strong and resilient, the DFW market in, in general? It's just such a great place to do business just overall. And it's such a diverse economy. I think the airport, helps. You can get anywhere. You know, the cost of housing uh, still remains relatively affordable. Of course, that's kind of getting pushed out a little bit. And there's just, you know, it's a great quality of life. Interestingly, I had a mentor once tell me, we are so fortunate to practice real estate in Dallas because some of the greatest real estate developers are based right here. Absolutely. And such a great place to be a practitioner of our industry because we have so many people that we can look up to and see the buildings that Trammell Crow built. If you haven't never read Trammell Crow Master Builder, pick it up and read it. It's such a great history. But in fact, I was reading a book on the plane back from Florida that I picked up that's some true crime, but it's about a, a crime in Highland Park. And they're talking about the guy who built the mansion. And I'm like, I love this. It's so great. Anyway, so so that's overall, I'm, I've always been a big fan of Dallas and Fort Worth. And by the way, I treat Dallas and Fort Worth Separately. Separately. Yes. Okay. Fort Worth is, you know, still kind of rising up. And I heard a stat the other day that Fort Worth is the fastest growing major city 
in the United States. Yes. And, you know, what's interesting about Fort Worth is the pipeline in Fort Worth is going out into new horizons that we haven't seen. And so there's a little apprehension. The rents aren't quite there in Weatherford yet. I think the Chisholm Trail Parkway has really opened up a new, a new horizon for us. And we're going into some markets that haven't seen new product. I think people will start to move out there. So I'm really excited about, you know, some of those outer east, western areas. Go west, young man. Western areas of Fort Worth that have really been small rural communities that are going to come into their own. We just signed a project in Fort Worth, one that you worked on, the Vickery. So you're very familiar with that one. Yes. So we're bullish on Fort Worth. What markets will be hot in 2024 for multifamily development? Will the Sunbelt continue to be a leader in the U.S. for this sector? Well, I love talking about markets. And I would say at this point in my career, there probably isn't a market that we haven't worked in. I just got back from my second trip to South Florida in two weeks. And so I'm very bullish on Southwest Florida, uh, specifically Tampa, Fort Myers, Sarasota. Those two smaller markets, you know, if you look at the trades in during the pandemic, they really like up their game. Um, we're actually working on a project there for a group in Sarasota right now. And Sarasota's I'm, been really hot. Very, very. I really like those markets. Miami is so world class. I mean, it's just like a museum of buildings. I mean, if you love architecture, just like... Just you can gaze at the skyline there and it's just absolutely beautiful. We just came, we had a conference there of condominium developers. And I was surprised to hear that, you know, a lot of the stuff on the water is trading at $3,500 a square foot plus. Wow. Yes. We toured a building. We toured a building in downtown in the World Center that's actually a condo building. And they share that 55% of their residents are renters. Wow. Yes. Influencers. Influencers. (laughs) Influencers. <laughs> Influencers, MBA stars, yes, living in these $40,000 a month condominiums. So during the pandemic, there was a lot of people moving from Northeast California down to Florida. Has that slowed? Has that picked up? No. Wait, and in fact, wait. when what we were hearing from a lot of the, the high-end condo salespeople is that more than ever, Miami's always benefited from geopolitical situations. So, so they'll have waves of Argentinians. They'll have waves of people from China coming in. So they've always sold more on the sales side to the international. And all of Florida, I even heard this in Tampa, they're seeing more domestic people than they ever have uh, coming in. So I think that's really interesting and telling that people are coming down to Miami, seeing that it is a world-class city, all of, you know, the beautiful- Jeff Bezos decided that. He's down there, everybody, (laughs) you know. I mean, there's a, there was one gentleman that is building a 32-unit condo and he's including 18 marina boat slips with the 32 units <laughs> so you might have two boats for your units so. that is awesome <laughs> it's great now in florida talking about sunbelt florida the biggest challenge there over the last let's call it six months has been insurance insurance it, because of that new project starts are are holding up people are being challenged right now with the reinsurance rate was that talked about at not your conference con- at all? Not at the condo level. Okay. You know, that's because that's more of an owner-occupied issue. So, no, they didn't really get into a lot of the costs other than the level of service is so high. The HOA fees, so like New York would be at like $3 a foot. I mean, they're crossing the $2 a square foot HOA fees in Miami because of the service level. And, in fact, it was one of the things that really was interesting to me is in our multifamily space, we're always looking at how we can remove a person from the office. And I'm hearing from the condo association. Become leaner. Yes. The condo people are like, we need more people down here managing these buildings. The building that we toured was 900, ho- 900 homes, 58 stories, 
the most amenities in Miami. They have 50 people working there. Is that because of level of service? Yes. They're just trying to always one-up yes. one another. Yes. So it's level of service yes. is how they win. So the condos are really going in that direction. So I thought that was really interesting. Other markets that I really like right now, I, Denver continues to hold up. Houston, believe it or not, you know, the thing I always say about Houston is it's like a roller coaster ride. You got to hold on. You yeah. know, you're going to go up, you're going to go down. But I think Houston looks really good. The single family lot supply is also undersupplied there. So, you know, no competition. Seattle, always a good market, continues to be a good market. I mentioned earlier San Jose. I think that San Jose is benefiting from a lot of the challenges in the San Francisco city proper. And that downtown San Jose area, I think, is really ripe for opportunity. Of course, Dallas-Fort Worth, always like that. And then Los Angeles is always on the top of my list. If you can get over gritty, because it's gritty everywhere, you know, LA is, is a great place to be. But overall, I think that I would never bet against Austin. I'm watching okay. it. I love it. You know, again, I'm a South Texas girl. So, you know, I want Austin to win always. You know, we're going to watch it. But I don't think that we will be looking on the other side of this in a couple of years thinking anything but don't bet against Austin. And then Nashville is just kind of a mini Austin to me. And, you know, a lot also, of people moving to Nashville, people moving to Nashville. People like music. They do. CNBC was doing a big special, I think, last night on cities and Nashville was their first city that they were talking about and and highlighting companies that had moved there and why. So I think that's, again, those two. So you're you bullish know, on Nashville. I am. I, okay. you know, again, watching, but, but I think both of those, you know, wouldn't bet against them. You work a lot in the area of product design and have previously mentioned single family rentals as a hot product type. Will this trend continue? What's the latest on design trends for single family? Gosh, this is a really interesting asset class because to me, you know, obviously it was birthed out of the great financial crisis, but it was almost created in order to take advantage of a fragmented mom and pop ownership, but it's still so fragmented. Like every time someone calls me about a BTR product or an SFR product, no one even knows what to call it. I have to qualify them with like a hundred questions to figure out exactly what it is they're doing. But it is a very favorable asset class. You know, you have the horizontal apartments or what we like to call cottage style. There's the scattered lots. There's buying a contiguous piece of property within a master plan community and building homes that are individually platted. So you have all kinds of different scenarios there. I personally, and this is something that- Everybody was talking about this four years ago. They love it. And I remember, and I'm going to give a shout out to Joe Peterson. Way back in the day, we were up in Keller looking at this map that he had out. And he goes, I have this great idea. I'm going to build homes, but I'm going to rent them. And I was like, he was always kind of ahead of his time. But, you know, this was way back, you know, and I was like, well, that's interesting. It was during the great financial crisis. We'd been up there looking at his art house deal and it was in Keller and he was planning to do something in North Fort Worth at that time. I don't, never got legs, but I was like, well, how does that density work? You know, there was just a lot of questions, but, you know, it's been out there for a long time. I think residents like it, but I, of course, approach it with a renter, rental owner mindset. In a lot of the competition out there, you know, there's this single family mindset. There's a lot of different ways of looking at it, but I'm always looking at, are we maximizing the rent? Right. Like if it's at what rate, I always say the wrong question to ask when you walk into a community is what's leasing well. That's not the question. It's at what rate? Because something may be leasing well because you had to cut the price. 
So when I approach these, I like to look at the rents per square foot and see, because that tells you everything about what's leasing. Sure. And I overall in the, you know, the major markets where there's enough product to study, of course, that's Phoenix. And then you have Dallas is second. Houston's got some, Austin's got a little in South Florida, you know, is, is also up and coming because they are, I think one of the biggest trends is everybody's sweeping that way. You know, they started in Phoenix and they're hitting Dallas and they're just headed t- towards Florida. And so every bit, every developer is kind of moving in that direction. So we're going to see that product really increase. Phoenix being the poster child has mostly horizontals and those horizontals. So you see the rents per square foot on the ones and the twos that don't share walls are really, really high. The threes are okay. And then, you know, anything that's larger than that, it really drops down below. And those are some townhomes and things like that. If you look at Dallas, Dallas is a little bit bigger. We do some four bedrooms, but we really don't see any five bedrooms in the market. And then you go to Houston and they have four and five bedrooms because there's one group there that's done a lot of the master plan community and built bigger homes there. They're like five twos. What I'm seeing, probably most importantly at this point, and the product's still so new, is that bedroom bathroom parity is extremely important. So building a 5-2, you can just see the rents just drop way off. Drop off. So there's this, you know, 3 twos probably okay, 3 two and a half. They don't do a lot of 3 threes. So the 3 threes that are in the market are like really high rent per square foot. I mean, equal to kind of the twos and the ones that are still the best. You know, and again, that kind of tells me they're still the same renter. They're just going off into a different product in that one and two, you know, single family environment because they're still able to get that premium rent on those. With the increase in interest rates over the last year or so, you would believe BTR product type would excel because it's cheaper to rent than it is to buy. If interest rates fast forward, you know, thinking two years from now, interest rates go back down, is BTR going to, is it going to damage that product type? You know, I think it could. I mean, I think a lot of the reasons, and if you go on, I love to look at American, some of the publicly traded REITs and read the reviews. I'm a lover. I love to read apartment reviews. It's like, if I want comedy, that's what I do. And so- Some people get pretty fired up. Oh my goodness. One of my favorite quotes, I have to share it. It makes me laugh. It's like, I would be better off living in the woods in a box than in this apartment. I love this. So good. But, you know, when you look at, you know, some of the people that are responding and putting out there a lot of their issues, they aren't ready for homeownership. And in fact, it's like my air condition went out in the middle of summer. I'm like, welcome to the homeownership club. I mean, those, those are just, you know, but of course, because they're renters, they're like, I can't believe, you know, I have little it. children. Yeah. And I'm sitting here, you know, and you're like, well, again, welcome to homeownership. So, you know, there's this, you know, we're going to lose, we lose 20% of our people to homes, you know, historically that's come way down. Uh, right now. But yes, I think that that will go back. I think that mar- that market, depending on what product type it is, is definitely uh, susceptible to losing people into the home market. But then they've always said, hey, so an exit for me is I can sell this home. Certainly not the horizontals, but the scattered. You know, they've slowed down a lot. And in that business slowed down faster in my world than higher density stuff. I mean, they're at a standstill right now. And so to me, I keep thinking, when are they going to start selling these homes? Because that was one of the options. And there is a lot of demand for, you know, home builders want to build more homes and get the product out to market. Of course, they're buying interest rates down. Well, you know, there's all kinds of stuff there, but long way of saying, I do, I question the business a little bit because I come from the high density world. You know, I always approach it as like, hey, if you bury a bunch of homes in the back of a master plan community and just hope someone finds you on the internet, are you really maximizing the value? Are you really getting the highest rents? What trends are you seeing with the cities that were hot spots for multifamily growth during the pandemic? Are we seeing a cool down in the popular pandemic escape markets like Austin, Boise, 
other markets? I would say yes. A lot. There was a lot of hype surrounding those. The most mobile of the workers were the tech workers. In fact, I was in Telluride the first summer. Because they could work from yeah. home. And we were going to this hidden lake that was like, you know, a six hour hike. And we ran into one person and it was some guy that was like, yeah, I'm from New York. And I just decided to come do this because, you know, I can't do anything else. So there was a lot of those digital nomads during that time. It was amazing. And I think they're getting called back to work. Certainly Silicon Valley is trying to get people back. I think the AI revolution that is occurring is going to save Silicon Valley, which by the way, they all come from the University of Toronto, which I'm very fascinated by, but they're, you know, coming to Silicon Valley. I think AI is really going to pull a lot of people back. They want them in the office. So again, that's kind of where my San Jose bullishness comes from. You know, places like Boise, they're great little markets, but you know, all little markets, I actually moderated a panel with Jeff Adler from Yardi sure. and Greg Willett, a good friend of mine. And they both were like, we love some of these little markets, but pipeline, you know, can tank them in a second. And Boise is one of those places where there is a lot of pipeline coming. And I think that there's going to be some some challenge there. Talking about AI, is Austin the new Silicon Valley? And yes and no. I mean, I think that we'd like to think it is, but I think that, you know, there's still so much money, the capital, you know, the Sand Hill Road folks that are in Silicon Valley. And by the way, one of my favorite podcasts ever, I actually have a podcast crush on Jason Calcanis with This Week in (laughs) Startups. I listen to it all the time. You know, they've just, they're so entrenched on the VC side that I just, you know, I don't know how we can shift it all to Austin. I'd love to see that for sure. But, you know, we got, we got to get some more transportation corridors and some public transportation in Austin before we grow to be that big. I saw your comment about two months ago that capital markets would impede multifamily housing starts for the next few years. We talked about earlier, Trademark just recently completed a transaction in this difficult market. When will things start to ease up, in your opinion? And just how much of the slowdown do you think we will see? Well, congratulations on getting your deal done. You can always pat yourself on the back for that one. You worked on that one. I had something to do with that. You worked on that one. There's been some really significant things that have happened during this time, but I would say it's a tale of haves and have nots. And, you know, some people that I talk to are like, oh, I have no problem getting a bank loan. It's the equity that doesn't, can't make the numbers work or, you know, seven is the new five, da, 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 you know, all of those things. Um, And then conversely, I hear some people go, gosh, the banks, you know, can't talk to them. Debt funds are too expensive. You know, I'm out of business, you know, that kind of thing. And so I think it really, you know, a lot of, again, a lot of the bigger developers that have ongoing relationships with banks, they are not seeing that trouble. They're just not seeing the returns. So, you know, they're on the sidelines. It's easy to be a naysayer. I'm like, I love all the people that like to like pat themselves on the back for calling the downturn. Well, who's saying when the upturn is? You know, I'm like, I'm kind of more of a glass half full person. But of course, I work in the development side of the business. So so that's kind of where I am. But, you know, what I'm seeing is that good deals in good locations with strong sponsors and persistent teams are going to get done. And I think that during this time, I mean, I checked the 10-year treasury like it's, you know, my job. It is my job. But, you know, it's down. It was under, you know, 4-1. You know, of course, then the whole bond market and the stock market, you know, the stock market kind of being a little bit of a predictor Absolutely. of where things are going and, and certainly the mindset of where investors are. So I think we're moving in that direction. And much like the great financial crisis, and I, go, I always go back to that because I remember three or four guys that just seemed stupid at the time that were just push, push, pushing their deals. And they were the first bag. 
into the market. And they look really smart on the other end. And not to give any REITs a shout out, but there was one REIT that really, in, in during my time in the great financial crisis, that was first out. And they killed it. So I think that we're going to start timing. to see it. Yes. Sometimes it's not always good timing, though. <laughs> no, it's not. And you can't, you know, certainly high rises. I mean, you can go through two or three cycles before the thing gets built. But I think that, you know, overall, we're going to see waves, especially as good news comes. And then, you know, there's just so many different factors. It's this good thing happens. It's like good news, bad news. And, you know, sometimes the good news is bad news. And sometimes the bad news is good news. You know, right now, it's just we're so up in the air. There is no clear path. But I think we are at the point now where everybody is going to be talking more about when the Fed's going to lower the federal funds rate, sure. when that's going to happen. Ten year t- we look at the 10-year <laughs> treasury pretty much every every Minute. day. Yes. It, I mean, it just closed last night at, I believe it was like 410, 411. 411. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're paying close attention to that. I feel like that has to start building confidence. When you're seeing the run-up of 200 bips, 100 bips, and it just keeps going, you lose a lot of confidence. But now that we've seen it kind of decline another 100 bips, and at least for the 10-year, that has to bring a lot of confidence into the market. So No doubt. And, you know, like I said, I'm starting to see those green shoots of people. I had a really interesting September out of nowhere. Everybody kind of got busy again, and then it kind of subsided again. So I I do think we're going to see these Ways. I would have thought the contrary. September was weird. And then it just kind of slowed back down. And then Thanksgiving, you know, so I think we're going to see these waves. A lot of people I'm talking to right now are getting books ready for the first quarter. Got it. So we'll see, you know, going out into the market, see what equities thinking in terms of shoring up underwriting and shoring up, you know, convincing the equity sources that we've done our diligence. You know, we're doing a lot on our side to to support our clients on just our methodologies, um, you know, the quality of the data, you know, the accuracy of the data, you know, all of those things that I think are extremely important when you're on the phone with analysts in Greenwich to kind of really walk them through the methods. And, you know, because they're smart and they're numbers people and, you know, they ask a lot of really intelligent questions. So we need to be prepared for those types of conversations. And there was a time talking to the capital markets guys at JLL, you know, where they're like, yeah, it was just like, here are the 10 options, pick one. And now it's going to be, you know, it's going to get harder and you're going to have to prove your story. And that's kind of what I love to do most. I was actually talking with a younger person in our firm this week. And I said, you know, I'm not really like, I'm a really good at math, but I'm not an air math girl because they didn't make us learn all that stuff when we were kids quickly, you know, all the, all the, yeah, but numbers tell me a story. Sure. So when I look at a piece of paper, I don't find the error by doing air math. I go, this doesn't make sense. And so that's what I love about our jobs is that we take the numbers and we tell a story and we're telling a story of why this investment makes sense with all of the numbers. And I always tell people in business, of course, this is bad in your personal life. But if I use the phrase, I feel like fill in the blank, we haven't done enough research. It needs to be the facts say, da, 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 da. That's kind of our mantra is, facts don't tell me, story. don't ever tell me how you feel about this. <laughs> I want to know have what the opinion. numbers say. Yeah, have, have an, an opinion. opinion based on the numbers. So, and I think that that is the mindset, you know, going forward as we pitch these deals and we bring good deals to market is really having that story locked up and tight and watching because, you know, it's going to go up and down. We always laugh, you know, you have to kill the deal in order to save the deal. You know, things are going to go up and down. There's going to be volatility in the markets. And, you know, we have to be ready to give that story. So for new deals, a lot of discipline, got to be creative to be able to move new deals forward. There's a lot of media attraction about converting offices into multifamily. Do you believe that's feasible or practical solution to, to housing shortages? 
Well, I always used to joke that, you know, we're at the top of the cycle when they I start seeing office conversions come to me to underwrite. Dallas has actually, believe it or not, had some success over the years. I mean, Post did really? the Wilson building way back and, and Hall Financial did that Pegasus project. So we've had a lot of success over the years with doing some historical, amazing buildings. And there are several people even today who are doing some conversions and I've heard good stuff. We've underwritten them. Good things about initial leasing there. I think the Thompson Hotel combination with the residences, you know, really changed the underwrite for me because there always was like a 20% discount on these buildings to like a new construction build. Sure. And that one didn't get a discount to the market. So, you know, there's some compelling ideas there. You know, I think that in looking at buildings, we actually, I actually did an analysis for someone who was trying to prove that a building couldn't be converted, which was weird, but it was in Houston. And one of the things that really became clear to me that you're not always thinking about when you look at a a one-dimensional map was that this building was surrounded by taller buildings and it really had no views of anything. And so that's one thing to be thinking about is what's still activated down below. Sure. You know, and, you know, the height of the building, of course, there's always good and bad. We actually have a little grid that we use to do the pros and cons of buildings because sometimes you have more elevators. That's a good thing. Sure. You know, sometimes the ceiling height is bad. That's a bad thing, you know, and are we going to mix uses? Are we going to have office still in there, which is really a tough mix. You don't recommend that. No, no, that's a tough mix to put office and and residential together because, you know, people are going up in their business suits and someone's coming down with their dog and their PJs, you know, and that's... It better be separate elevators if you're going to do it. So, but, you know, we look at all of those things. And so sometimes, you know, some buildings are better than others. And so, you know, we look at each one of them step by step. Sometimes they have great parking. Sometimes they have no parking, you know. So all of those things are factored in to each one of the buildings. I think that... The ones that I've seen and walked are great. That They've done a really good job. There's some really good ones in Dallas. You know, Philadelphia's always had old buildings that are converted. And we aren't seeing a lot of it yet in Austin or, you know, one or two in Houston with limited success there. So I think that it's still to be determined. But people, I think it is an opportunity. You see a, a lot of developers are speaking to you. Out of that percentage, what would you say that is in the office conversion? A very low percentage? Very low. Very yeah, low I probably do. So not a whole lot. I probably look at one of those deals right now. I mean, and we've been doing them for a couple of years. I'd say every th- every quarter, someone might every bring quarter, something Somebody to gets us. the idea. Yeah, yeah. It's usually not a main developer. It's someone that's more creative that probably has a love for the city and wants to do something right. So they have a little bit more of a altruistic sure. motivation than just, you know, adding the housing, but it's also creating a great deal. So they're more creative. I think there's a lot of cities trying to create an incentive program to be able to do it. Underutilized office, how can we, you know, make the conversion? I know Chicago is is at the forefront of that right now mm-hmm. with a lot of their oversupplied office building just mm-hmm. sitting vacant. You do a lot of data. So with the data that you do, and we reach out to you pretty frequently, yeah. is a renter in 2024 in terms of needs, price sensitivities, et cetera, different than the previous years. What are the renters asking for now? And what do developers need to keep in mind to meet those demands? Well, as I mentioned earlier, I mostly work on the higher end product. And actually, I was listening to a luxury futurist the other day who said that we over we as a society have overused the word luxury. You know, sometimes we place luxury on a building that isn't so luxurious. 
that kind of went through a cycle. It was boutique. Yeah. Then it was luxury. luxury. You know, and it was what? What's the right, new word? Right. To right. Well, I mean, well. So you know, I'm thinking about the luxury renter. Then I want to talk about a different kind of renter. But when you think about the luxury renter, they definitely want that level of service. They want a view. They don't want to give up anything. There's just this this high touch service level that you know continue. And we say good customer service, but this futurist was great. You know, she talked about the wow factor. So everybody baseline expects to have someone be nice to them and meet their needs. But like, you know, what do you personally like? And I, I, this was a great example. What what were those? Well, so here's a great example. We had a, a, this is a high rise building, but there was a concierge and I was doing a focus group. We were trying to understand just what they like, what they didn't like about the building they were living in. And this woman said, I'm single. I had surgery. And you know, I was having a really hard time. And she said, the concierge called me in my apartment and said, I haven't seen your dog come down today. Do you want me to come up and get him? And she was literally crying when she was telling this story. And she said, I will never leave. It's that personal touch. It was like noticing something as simple as that, that level of service that just knowing someone was having a hard time and going to meet their need. And I think that's the little wow. That's a little bit different than, oh, we all get a move-in gift and we all get this, you know, when you're having these troubles or, hey, I noticed that this happened to your kid. Here's a little Band-Aid or here's a little set. You know, it's just all of those wow factors that don't cost a lot that we really, you know, need to be more focused on. And of course, we're always talking about removing people, removing people from the communities and things like that, which are important. You know, we want to operate and is there any new amenities? Oh my gosh. So well, there's so, always an amenity yes. race that feels like. Yes. What, what? But so here's my thing. You know, we've got those luxury renters and those are mostly millennials, older millennials, Gen Zers or Gen Xers. I'm sorry. But this new group of renters that are the youngest millennials and the oldest Gen Zers are so different. And they embrace technology. We have got to, as developers, embrace technology. You know, they don't want to talk to people. <laughs> They're the complete opposite of the luxury people. They don't want to talk to people. So what does that mean? Does that mean from the leasing experience or what? all the way around, you okay. know, being able to communicate about a problem without having to go to the office, you know, being able that we're already doing leasing online and put I a heard, service report. They yes, better be able a to service do a service request, request pay my rent, it. you know, all of those things. They don't want to handle, they don't want to address negativity with you. If they do have a problem, they want someone to just come fix it. They don't want to deal. They embrace technology. They would rather talk to someone. So we need to be prepared for that. The electrification of the vehicles, we've got to embrace that. We've got to figure that out. And we've got, you know, certainly Austin. Yes. Yeah. Austin with Tesla there. I mean, we got to do something in Austin for sure. Maybe not so much in Dallas, but they're going to be market by market. But I mean, I think the ownership of electric vehicles is going to increase and we're not ready for it. I mean, we're not ready for it as a society yeah. yet, but, you know, in the apartment business, we're certainly not ready for it. And, the infrastructure, and so, it's its tough to it put is. in. It is. And that, I think that, you know, third, the hybrid work situation, I mean, getting some of these younger people to come to work is just very challenging and we need to offer spaces for them to work. They need to be activated. They need to have coffee. I mean, we need to do, while we work kind of failed, right? Right. We need to learn from that because people did like it and put that in our community. So you're seeing that still as a popular The amenity. hybrid work is, you know, really meeting that, doing Zoom calls, making sure that your internet is stable. During the pandemic, there was a lot of talk about units that had an office or an area for a desk. 
Do you think that is still as unpopular or as important as the co-working spot? Co-working. I think it, I think it's a better solution, you know, and I mean, you just talk to people that work by themselves a lot and they're like, my gosh, sometimes I feel isolated. They want to be social. They want to go They want to meet their their community members. Or just be somewhere where someone else is, you know, they have their headphones on, but it just feels like there's more activation. And, you know, that kind of goes back to, I just finished reading Outlive. If you haven't read it, you're younger than me, but it's a really good book. But, you know, that's one of the things about just having a better life is, you know, socializing. And of course, while these kids don't like to socialize, you know, they still want to be somewhere. They want to be in the mix. You know, I mean, Starbucks, you know, you go over there and there's just tons of people still sitting there doing whatever, not talking to each other with their headphones in, but still, you know, in a space where there are people. And I think that that, you know, continues to be something. Wellness well, is another, is a, that's a very important one to us. And that med- we're mental health it. issues, um, you know, they talk about them. They they talk about them more. They're very open about that. You know, what things are we doing to make sure that our residents feel like they have wellness? The blackout shades, you know, not having the the lawn guy there with the the loud mowers at certain times of the day. You know, right now the lawn, landscaping guys show up whenever. And let me tell you, when I'm working from home, it never fails that I'm about to get on a call and the neighbor's landscape guy shows up. I mean, we need to start having quiet times. For when people are doing things, Working you know, you know, there's just stuff like that that we really need to be thinking a lot about. And they're immersive. I mean, they consume art differently. Like I went to see that Go Van Gogh exhibit and yeah. I was like, dear Lord, have mercy. I feel like I'm on an acid trip. What is going on? <laughs> it's just the way people I'm like, I just want to see it on the wall. Thanks. But the sphere. I mean, oh, my gosh. Uh, we just it. I just talked to the gentleman who designed it. I mean, and that you should go see their website. They're amazing, some of the stuff that they're doing. But, and you know where their DNA was? Clubs. They started designing clubs. And this immersive feeling of, you know, it's big, it's cool, I can touch it. You know, I can experience it at this like giant experiential feelings. This is where the, this generation is going. And I think we- Experience. They want the experience. Yes. And I yeah. think that even from like, doing public art that is more digital, you know, in our communities, just things like that, or where they can share stuff, you know, of their own onto digital, you know, that, that is their way of communicating with each other. So I think that we just really need to be, you know, almost, I remember a great mentor, gentleman that I used to know, Aggie too, by the way, I won't give his name, but he was at a a publicly traded REIT. He had at the time a council of millennials that he would meet with on a quarterly basis because he wanted to know what they were thinking about everything. Because he was like, I'm so out of touch with that. Sure. You know, and I think that we need to constantly talk to the younger folks about what they're seeing. And that's why I love hiring young kids to do field work for me. You know, the younger, because they bring a I different don't live perspective. in apartments anymore. They bring a difference. I have no idea, right? But I do have a 17-year-old who cries when Taylor Swift talks. So we have that. But, you know, there's this need to understand what's going on in the younger generation. They're our residents. And we want to know, you know, what they want. And it's different. Need I mean, to cater to them. Absolutely. So. Trademarks recently made a, a commitment to building our projects with National Green Building Standards, LEED certification. Do you think that's an important I, factor it, that you're seeing? I mean, in there, was Gen an article, Z? there was an article in the New Yorker that was talking about people that don't want to have children because they don't want them to live in this world. I mean, that's where their head is. You know, they're much more internationally, globally aware than we ever were. You know, I always laugh and say, when I was going to school or picking my school, it was like, just get a college education and you'll right. be, you'll be great. Right. Like just go to college and you will be a success. And now it's like, what are the rankings of colleges? What do they offer? 
What's their housing like? What's the, what are their buildings like? What's their history? How, you know, there's all of these different A lot questions, of other factors. You know, and, and every school now even acknowledges their land acknowledgement of, you know, the Native American history that may be on their land, you know, and the kids hear this and they think this, they're influenced by this. And we need to be thinking, you know, the same way because that's that's what they're used to and they're embraced. Kimberly, we really appreciate your time today. Is there anything else that's on your mind that you would like to cover yeah. before we wrap up? Well, so probably the coolest thing I saw coming back from Miami, super inspired. We had just some of the greatest minds in in condominium development on the stage. And I think the thing that really stood out in my mind is this branded residence concept. I mean, they were saying most of the buildings in the condo space coming into the market in Miami are branded. There, it's, it's very rare now to find an unbranded sure. building. Those brands get 20% plus on their pricing. We've tried, we've been dabbling in it in multi. You know, we tried to create our own brands. Now, I mean, there's a little bit of brand loyalty. Developers have their brands. This but... going back to these younger kids, right? So, you know, of course, the most established brands are Ritz Carlton, you know, St. Regis, and those are probably not Gen X, Gen Z brands, right? But the Thompson doing the apartments. Thompson. They've done some apartments in Austin. They're doing, they did that deal in Dallas. Omni's had some success with it. We have Omni condos here. There's an Omni in in Louisville. But I'm just wondering, how are we going to be able to incorporate branding? And the fashion houses are getting into this. The cars are getting into this. Yeah. You know, there's all kinds of branding associated with buildings. So I just wonder, how can the multi Well, Miami has the Porsche. Yes, the the Porsche Porsche building. Yes. Dolce Cabana. You know, there's just a whole bunch of different ideas there that I think could really add some value and create some buzz around a brand. And what was interesting is that that one gentleman, he said, you know, if you name your building wind, you have to go out and spend however much, you know, half a million dollars developing the concept of wind, right? If you go and you put Ritz Carlton Mm -hmm. on it, everybody knows what to expect. They already have that. A yeah. Four, a four you seasons have this, is a four seasons. Right. You have this brand that already has, you know, of course it costs you. And that's one of the reasons why we haven't been able to underwrite it in multifamily because it's costly. But I do think there is some kind of marrying of brands. And, you know, you guys with all of your retail experience sure. could probably figure this out quicker than anybody else. But, you know, whether it is a fashion brand or something that, you know, you want to be careful. One of the things they said was we thought about a Ferrari brand. But Ferrari is a little aspirational. And, you know, the Mm -hmm. guy that wears the Ferrari shirt probably doesn't buy a Ferrari. And the guy that buys a Ferrari doesn't wear a Ferrari shirt. So that's probably not, you know, yeah, that's probably not, you know, an aspirational brand. But, you know, those that really speak to people, whether it be on the sustainability side or the wellness side, you know, there's got to be some branding there that can really grab that, that younger renter. So that's kind of an inspiration for me. There's someone smarter than me that will figure that out and go and implement it. And I'll be glad to help. But I think that there's some real opportunity there. Well, Kimberly, thank you again. This was a pleasure. Yes, thank you. Loved it. Thank you for listening. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. To learn more about Trademark Property Company and to see how we elevate the everyday, visit trademarkproperty.com.